even if the perfectly walkable existed, actually there are things that we need to fix first. People can agree that we, we did not really solve problem by adding lanes. Dr. Tamara Bozovic, civil engineer, transport analyst, walkability expert. In Auckland, for instance, a quarter of the trips that people drive are under one kilometer and 14% are even under 500 meters. We don't have a good understanding of why people drive short trips and why people don't walk short trips. The city's main arterial routes gridlocked. Is a congestion tax right for Auckland? Lots of you are saying yes. Maybe the solution isn't we need more drivers so there are more buses on the route. If you can convince half of those people to walk, then you don't have a bus driver problem to, to fix. We built all this infrastructure with the idea of enabling us to access places. It had some um, pretty bad consequences that we are not really aware of. Walkability. How do we properly gauge whether walking somewhere is viable or not? Every unique journey in daily life presents a variety of potential transport options to us. But we need to stop thinking of this as car versus bus versus biking versus walking. All these modes kind of coexist together, or at least they should, to allow for the unpredictability of everyday human behaviour and the hundreds of factors that impact how we get around. Can you actually improve the tangible walkability of a city? Let's take a walk with Dr. Tamara Bozovic and find out. This is PhD Unpacked. Before we get into your research, can you first tell us a little bit about uh, your personal background, your professional background, and I guess how you ended up writing this PhD mm. specifically? Yeah, I'm a transport engineer. Technically, I'm a civil engineer, but I really, w during my studies, I was really, it was the early 2000s, and I was really um, interested by the climate change and the idea that we need to, really this urgency of doing something. And transport seemed a way of okay this is some, this is a topic where there is a lot to do and i oriented my studies towards uh, transport engineering and my whole professional life i always picked jobs that looked at alternatives to driving so i worked um, and it was about active travel but also public transport and worked a lot with urban designers so got to understand better these connections between transport and uh, uh, and land use so really come from this um, professional background of transport engineering and as you said I worked in Switzerland, I worked in Argentina, I worked in uh, Aotearoa as well um, and I was really always interested in how do we how do we change, how how do we make change happen uh, for transport to be more sustainable um, but also more equitable and that's something that maybe came a bit I educated myself maybe a bit later about the inequities in transport and seeing that as such a such an important topic and such mm. a, um, an urgent thing that we need to to make happen it feels like there's these two different elements to your your research and I guess your professional background that come together in this PhD and the one pocket being climate change and the other being social justice yeah. and, and you speak about in your in your research I guess you know social justice looking at barriers that that stop people from accessing things and I guess walking being our most basic way of, of getting around is potentially something that people don't think about being something that can be d discriminatory. When did you first have that thought that walking might be something 
like a core focus to do to do in terms of your your PhD research yeah. rather than rather I mean it not ties into to driving and, and transport this is all one conversation but did you have a kind of light bulb moment where you thought wow walking is something that we don't research enough yeah first I was interested in walking as part of zero carbon modes and as you said really the most basic way of getting around living in Switzerland it was not such a big topic Switzerland is very um, tidy and um, pretty accessible I must say coming to New Zealand things changed uh, well first in first Argentina and then New Zealand things changed a bit thinking about especially how traffic related infrastructure impacts on to start with my own experience of walking and how some places can be pretty hostile to uh, to walking and then working in this field and realizing that as transport engineers we don't have such a good knowledge of things that people might be struggling with we, d- we don't have it mapped say where where are the places that people cannot access cannot where they cannot cross the road um, talking with disabled people is also different li- light bulb moments because i think as non-disabled people we, there are just a lot of things that we just don't even see because they don't matter and then when you talk with someone who is really impacted by those things that you you don't see it's it really questioned me as transport engineer, thinking, "Wow, I, I didn't know that," and that's really, that's really pretty major. And I started reading about severance, and severance is this idea of people not being able to access their destinations. And often severance, or almost always severance, happens because of transport infrastructure. So it's a road that we built to connect A to B. But actually, going across that road can be really hard and can cut people from things that might be on the other side. And that's something that I found really interesting, this idea that we built all this infrastructure with with the idea of uh, enabling us to access places and how it had some um, pretty bad consequences that we are not really um, aware of. And I guess on that point, you know, when we think about walkability, it's probably something that if you, you you spoke to 100 people in a street and you said, you know, do you think it's important for people to walk more? People be, of course, immediately climate change. We yeah. want to encourage people to be getting out of car. You know, the entry level to this topic, most people are probably on board with. It's the diving into the what's not as simple as just saying people should walk more. Yeah, you know, it's 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 far more complex of a discussion and people potentially often give it give it credit for it is and i also think it's really not a behavior change thing i know that we we are human we are going to do what is convenient what feels good what is pleasant what is doable in the first place so i'm i'm not interested in changing people and i don't believe that we are going to change the nature of human beings i don't think that's a very good goal to work towards but I think that our environment can really can or does enable or disable some things or make some things easy and convenient and make some things um, a bit of a pain. Mm. So I think Mm. I'm really interested in how we change the environment so that the environment um, encourages those behaviors that we that we want to see happen. Lots of your research applies to any sort of metropolitan city, and obviously there are takeaways that you can apply to, to mm-hmm. any particular city. We're recording this in Wellington. There's mm-hmm. many, many elements of your research that we can apply to a Wellington context. But I guess it's worth asking, what makes Auckland a good case study for mm-hmm. this research in yeah. particular? 
Yeah, well, I had this idea of the co- traffic-related infrastructure on my mind start starting the PhD. And I think Auckland is, unfortunately, quite a good, quote-unquote, example of a city that was really built around um, motorized traffic. So Auckland was massively developed um, between the in, the in the 20th century, between the 1920s and the 1960s, 70s onwards. Most of the development happened uh, in this modernist era where we saw car as an element of progress. A lot of Auckland has been really developed with massive infrastructure for, tra- for traffic. Jan Gale, who is um, um, a bit of a star urbanist called Auckland a peak hour traffic machine and I I find it interesting so it really Auckland went a very long way in providing attractiveness for driving which actually doesn't even work because it's driving in Auckland can be really well I think people can agree that we we did not really solve problem by adding by adding lanes. So it's it's a good example because it's very car centric, and so it's a good place to study how this infrastructure built for traffic what it does to people who try to walk or who would like to walk. And also, I guess one point that you make in your your description of Auckland is it's not just that the infrastructure of the city is car centric. It's also that uh, there appears to be a disconnect, and this is your words, between policy objectives relative to walkability, understanding of users' needs, and delivery of more walkable environments. So it's it's one thing to say that a city, you know, is 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 car heavy, but also potentially the the people who have the ability to make change to perhaps make it more walkable don't actually understand yeah, what yeah. is happening with the city. When I was first investigating New Zealand, because I, I, w- I got appointed at Wahakotahi and I was investigating the strategies and planning, etc., and I got quite excited because strategies say the right words. <laughs> and, uh, and I think there is this disconnect that you say between strategies that say all the things that you want to read, that we are going to have a system that is uh, carbon neutral, that people are going to choose to walk and cycle and take the public transport and that things are going to be accessible. And then it's really how to get from there to the practice. So yeah, thank you for bringing this, uh, this point. And that was really the last study was really engaging with professionals about, okay, how do we how do we loop this loop? How do we... Because at the end of the day, the, the purpose of this researcher is always bring, to bring something back to the practice because I'm interested in how we improve the streets. I'm not interested in doing research for the sake of research. Mm. Could you give us, I guess, like an overhead description of some of the elements mm-hmm. of that model? I realize that it's a visual yeah, tool yeah, yeah, and this yeah, is yeah. an oral no, medium, yeah, yeah, yeah. but, but, uh, but no. it's some of the stuff that goes into this, like what makes a city walkable? Totally. Happy to happy to explain. Before that, I would just like to mention that the idea of walkability is not consensual. So there is not an agreement even within academia or within professionals. We speak of cities that are walkable and it's we can be talking about different things. So that was, and that was actually the, the first literature review was part of the one of the questions is really what do we mean by walkability and actually we mean all kinds of different things and there is there is no um, there is no agreement there, there, there are some scores like walk scores offered to measure or quantify walkability but they can mean very uh, very different things for from um, 
they for instance don't don't look at the quality of the working environment so the model that I found very helpful uh, was first developed by Isabella Alfonso and um, it links the environment to people's behaviors but it says two important things the first important thing is that this link is not direct the link between environment and behavior is not direct the link goes through people's perceptions so the objective environment things that you can measure things that uh, you can observe the person is going to act on them only once they have processed them in their brain and once they have um, made their opinion of their environment. And so I found useful that Isabella Alfonso put this uh, um, people's perceptions in a hierarchy like Maslow's hierarchy of human needs, except in this case it's a hierarchy of walking needs. So from the most basic being feasibility to more sophisticated like pleasantness. So person is exposed to an environment, say a street or a crossing, and they are going to decide well, in the first place, is this thing feasible? And if this thing is fe not feasible, well, they're not even going to consider things higher up in the hierarchy because they don't matter. Say um, a street is completely flooded from the rain and it's yeah. needed water because it's been designed poorly. Someone's not going to go wading totally. through that thing. So that could that could only be the the yeah that could only be a thing. And um, and the other important thing is that those this connection between environment, people's perceptions and behaviors, uh, what influences it is people's individual characteristics, the characteristics of their travel. An example would be a stretch of street that is really, that has a lot of traffic, that is gray. And maybe if you're choosing to go for a walk, you might not choose to go there for a walk because it just doesn't feel uh, as a place that you would choose. But maybe the same street is on your shortest path to your bus stop that you need to take to go to work. Well, in this case, you're going to be, your your motivations are going to be different, and so you're going to take this uh, the the street that you even though you perceive it as maybe uncomfortable or unpleasant. Uh, so that's the, that's the the basic model, and I just. So this is still in development and there are things that are, as you said, there are things that are um, open for debate and that's uh, something that I'm actually having a debate on with, uh, uh, with people in the academia and, uh, and uh, practice right now. But I do find really helpful this idea of disentangling the objective environment that we measure and people's perceptions and also saying well actually people's perceptions matter. It's not only the things that we, that we, that we measure and that we consider important. Hmm. It's really important to understand, and in my case what interested me is to understand what is it that people might struggle with or for which people might say, I'm just not going to do this. Yeah, because there's two sides to this sort of situation. Right? One is, is what is why do people choose to walk somewhere? And the flip side is, what are direct barriers mm, that prevent yeah. people from, from yeah. that? Um, and I, I, in that first pool like, of questions of, you know, what makes something walkable? What is the experience of, of people uh, that would make them choose to walk somewhere? I love that example of, of Maslow's hierarchy of needs because often visualized in this sort of pyramid form, it makes it really clear the things that at the, the base level, say uh, safety being a big thing for walking, is something that if something feels unsafe, it is going to be the first thing that you know decides whether someone walks mm. somewhere or not. But the higher end needs might be, as you say, pleasure. Like if something is really beautiful and is a, is a great uh, experience, for example, think of Wellington, people walking around the waterfront, walks that take you through the botanical gardens, 
that is near the sort of the the pointy end of of, of the pyramid the kind of beauty mm-hmm. of walking space and I, I think it's really worth saying that within your phd one of the studies did ask people why they chose to walk in places and and you found that lots of the responses were to do with experience yeah and i think that the, the factors are going to be different for what you choose to do or what you decide not to do and i think i really think there are some elements that are just your basic needs and feasibility or safety or accessibility are probably parts of your basic needs you're not going to choose it's not a very aspirational thing to say oh this is safe so i mean yeah it, it is and it's not something that is going to make you choose a thing however you really need it as a um, basic ingredient of um, of your decision yeah when you put it into words it seems to me quite common sense yeah, yeah, where, yeah. But, but what you found is that there is not a whole lot of agreement on what um within mm. people in the professional environments that have impact on on you know let's say city planning urban yeah. designers health transport lots of them don't agree as you said before on what walkability is for some people walkability is not about experience it's more about the physical possibility of of reaching a destination which i would have thought well of course uh, you know they people must be taking into account experience but mm. That is actually doing too yeah. much presuming, right? Yeah, 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 it is. And I think it's a, one of the probably bad leftovers from the glorious 50s and 60s where, you know, engineers knew the things. <laughs> and um, there was a bit, there was a lot of this techno-rationalism where, yeah, we know. We know what, we know what people need and we're going to build it and they're going to come. And Jane Jacobs, actually, from the 60s, I think Jane Jacobs is famous still now because in the 60s she dared um, co- oppose this idea because um, she lived in, in New York and Greenwich Village was going to be destroyed to build a, a motorway. And she organized the neighborhood to resist this saying no you engineers think that the motorway needs to go there because you need you think that we need this speed and you, you think that people need to to travel but actually people live here people very, very diverse people and she observed how the life of the neighborhood and the fact that it's just incompatible with a motorway and she observed how again engineers would build those um, residential areas that were actually quite sterile and where there wasn't this kind of life on the street as in Greenwich village where she was living and so she she was one of the first figures who just stood up and said no you we can't this is this is not progress and honestly in engineering school i would i would have loved to learn more about psychology anthropology uh, sociology there is just not much of that there is really this idea of Oh yeah, well, um, a lot of assumptions of, of what people need. Mm-hmm. And walkability indices, walk score, for instance, looks at the destinations you have around you and assumes how long you are going to be willing to destinations and assumes what kind of destinations you are going to, to need and then calculates and says, oh yeah, in this area you have uh, your cafes, restaurants, uh, shops, etc. within um 1.5 to 2 kilometers and therefore you're going to be happy and it just does not reflect um, the experience of, of there's a lot of assumptions for instance just the basic thing of how, how long your um, 
how much you're willing to walk or what places you want to, to access. And other indices take into account the street connectivity and the density and the, and the land use. But again, it's, it's proxies. They, they don't take into account the street environment and, not, uh, and also not people's experiences. Mm. I live in a suburb called Hatayatai and Hatayatai is connected to the Wellington CBD by probably a 25 minute walk. And one of those walks takes you over Mount Victoria, and you might argue is the more sort of beautiful nature walk, but takes slightly longer. And the shorter version is through the Mount Vic Tunnel. And I'm sure that there would be some people who would look at that walk and say, well, you can get quite directly from Hatayda into town in 25 minutes, but that walk through the tunnel is so unpleasant because it's, for one thing, the air quality feels terrible. It's really, really loud because yeah. this particular tunnel has a, yeah, a history yeah. of motorists tooting because of uh, a ghost story and but it's so loud when you're walking in there even if you have headphones on and yeah. and so you would look at that walk and think it gets me from point A to point B quite efficiently and connects the suburb I live in in a walking way to to town but there are days where I just think is that something that I want to do. And it's such a good also ex example of the trade-offs that people keep making. And what I've seen in interviews is typically trade-offs between safety and convenience. Mm. And it can be where I'm going to choose to cross the road. And yeah, maybe it's convenient. And maybe I'm just going to just dash across the mm. road because it's mm. not very safe. Mm. Um, and then you talk with disabled people who just don't have that choice and who are just going to go the long way because it's the only way possible. And another thing, I guess when we think about the way that professionals uh, in these different fields think about walking and walkability and the quality of walking is, you mentioned that in, even when they agree, like for example, if uh, you know a public health specialist and a transport planner might agree that uh, safety is important, but they might be coming at it from completely different Angles and the example you give is you know public health specialists might might have reference to a general feeling of of health and safety, whereas a transport planner might be thinking of it as crossings and 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 how that relates to where pedestrians are, and and they're both thinking about pedestrians not being threatened by traffic, but where they're coming from from a specialized yeah. perspective is actually thinking about two different things. You're right. And also in tran well in transport I think we still unfortunately tend to look at safety in terms of crashes and we tend to look at places where people died. Herman Knopfler said this sentence that I thought was um, uh, pretty amazing. He said, you don't justify a bridge by counting people who swim um, and apply to transport, meaning there are places that are just feel so unsafe that people are not going to even trying to cross there and therefore no one is going to be hit there or die and therefore in transport statistics and when we look at places if we improve based on where crashes happen this place is not going to register because there will be nothing to see and I think that's that's something that we really need to get um, away from this idea of just reacting to crashes which can really happen based on it can be they cannot happen because people are not there. They can happen for really any a of bad reasons. luck or any number of reasons. But we don't look at the, the, the notion of risk and really we need to, need, need to look at how dangerous a place is and how many people are exposed to this danger. And that's something that we don't have. And I think maybe health professionals have a better idea, a better understanding of 
safety in terms of public health risk, but also look at a holistic way and look at people's experience of safety, which is not something that we focus a lot on in uh, transport engineering. So, Tamara, to bring this back to the specific research within uh, your PhD, which encompasses a few different studies, I wanted to ask you about the the first study that you in, in Endeavour to, to, to go about to, to find out some elements about walkability. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a survey study, um, to quote from your research, identifying associations between people's perceptions of their walking environment and walking levels, considering individual characteristics and the use of public transport. Can you tell us a little bit about that survey, what you were kind of trying to discover at that point mm-hmm. in the research, and I guess ultimately some of the things that that the findings presented to you? Yeah, it was really a bit of an opportunity. So at that point, I identified the theoretical model that says environment, perceptions, behaviors, and individual characteristic influencing all of that. And the survey was an opportunity. So it's Auckland Transport Active Mode Survey. And they asked over 4,000 people. Well, at that point, I had over 4,000 responses. And for each person, they ask, so they ask quite a range of questions and they ask people about their attitudes to walking. They ask people about their perceptions of their environment, such as my destinations are um, in walkable distance or walking feels safe, etc. Um, they ask people, they ask some basic demographic questions, age, for instance, and they ask um, the travel behavior in the previous week. It was great for me to have this data set that has people's perceptions of their environment and people's behaviors and some individual characteristics. And I thought, okay, let's. Let's try to see what what are the connections between both. So the difficulty was that it's a huge data set, so huge in terms of number of people, but that's not a problem in terms of analysis. The problem of analysis is the number of variables. And in this case, I had over 40 variables that were potentially interesting, such as people's attitudes, for instance, I walk because it's fun, I walk for fitness, etc., and people's perceptions of their environment. and. Um, so that was another kind of opportunity, but also um, thing I was curious about is to test machine learning because unlike classical statistical me- methods where we are going to see, we are going to take take two variables and look at what extent they are associated. Machine learning is very different. So in this case, I could cram everything in the model. So I took the uh, num the, the walking behavior as my outcome. And I asked two questions. First is, can we predict if someone is going to walk little or much based on what they said in terms of um, how they see their environment, um, their attitude to walking and their characteristics? Turn out, it's not perfect, but there is some, mm-hmm. um, there is some predictive power. And the second question was, then what matters? So it was an uh, iterative model that um, modeled people's behaviors based on based on their based on their choices so my first goal was really to this link between perception and behavior and i think i was part of me was hoping that people who um, find their walking environment 
pleasant and accessible, etc., are going to be the ones who walk much, and those who don't are the ones who walk little. And actually, the, the, that was not what I found. But that's the joy of science, right? You start with the assumption, and then maybe you find something else. And in this case, the the number one predictor of someone, if someone is going to walk much or little was the use of public transport which when you think about it is really not a surprise and it's something that we know that walking is part of most if not all public transport trips yet for instance in those walkability indices public transport doesn't doesn't score they look at the end destinations but not at walk to public transport so that was the first interesting thing was okay well yeah pu public transport actually has a huge importance even in a place like Auckland and the other was the importance of all those variables where people implicitly compare walking to other modes so um, walking is cheaper or walking saves me parking hassle uh, or walking is faster or those who drive, they don't walk when walking is not fun. Um, so that was also the other interesting thing to say, well, you can't, and again, it's no, it's nothing new in itself. It's no, it's something that we know. Yet, I think that there is a bit in both in research and in practice, this tendency to focus on the walking environment, say, ah, oh, the footpath, we're going to fix the footpath. And I think the outcome of the study is, Actually, it doesn't matter if, if driving is really convenient. You can fix this footpath all you want. Maybe the person is not even going to notice it because driving is convenient and, and they are driving. So that was, that was the, the, for me, the, the, the interesting thing to put walking, one, to connect it with public transport, and two, to put it um, within, the broader, um, within the broader transport um, system. Mm. So I developed throughout the project, pro, the, the PhD I developed this model, and in the end I broke it, so to say, because I really, th I there is one piece of research that says that modal choice is um, the result of the messiness of everyday life, and I do think it's the, we are we are human, we are complex. It's really we we cannot expect to predict someone's behaviors. Maybe it rains. Maybe you have a I don't know. You've bought a new microwave and you don't want to carry it, or a whole range, or I don't know. You have your child with you and it's just too complicated. So I I abandoned the idea of predicting someone's choice, but um, I use it as a model of non-walkability, saying, well, I actually I'm not really interested in predicting someone's, someone's choice, mm. but I'm really interested in better understanding what are those things that are deal breakers. Mm. And I think that for me as a transport professional, I need to be able to say what the deal breakers are. Mm. And I think that transport profession needs to fix the deal breakers and then messiness of everyday life will happen people will be people they will make choices but i think our responsibility is to remove those things that just make choices un impossible which i think is a really fascinating mindset shift but it's more about how can you remove as many things as possible that will guarantee or make it very likely that mm, someone will choose not yeah, to walk somewhere yeah. people are so so diverse you're never going to be able to 
make everyone the same and therefore they will fit the platform of walking but what you can identify is what are the things that are definitely stopping people from from walking And, and this very helpfully takes us into the the element of your phd which is about barriers to walking and could you talk us through I guess some of the latest studies that were more focused on the, this idea of barriers and and what did you find about the kind of concrete pillars? I guess they could be literal concrete pillars or, or, yeah, yeah, or yeah, metaphorical yeah. Yeah, concrete yeah. pillars that that make people choose to to not walk somewhere and the diversity yeah. of experience that that interacts with. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, as you said, uh, it, it was that was a bit of a light bulb moment. Say, thinking, well, I don't think that the perfectly walkable exists because even for you if you were to think of what's perfectly walkable maybe what's perfectly walkable today would not be the exact same as tomorrow and I also thought well given where we are here in a very car centric environment even if the perfectly walkable existed actually there are things that we need to fix first. Mm-hmm. So that's why I was interested in various, really. What are, what are those deal breakers? So I went to talk with, I talked to 56 people, half of whom um, had some, at least some difficulty with walking, hearing, seeing, or remembering and concentrating. And that, those are the people that I grouped as disabled people, but I would just like to put out there that I do think that, well, we know that disabled people are not a homogenous group, they are very diverse, but I just wanted to have this, the experience of people who have some difficulties with um, either motor or, or sensory um, and difficulties. So I interviewed them and I, um, I was really interested in the things that they might struggle with. So we talked about walks that they usually walk and I uh, asked what are the things that they enjoy but also what are the things that they might find difficult. Uh, I was really interested in them telling me exactly what it was and why it was difficult but I was also interested in putting it on a map so that then after the inter- after interviewing them, I could go to that place and see what is it, because I'm interested in comparing people's experience of saying something is difficult and the objective aspect of, okay, what is on the ground? What is what is this that makes this person think it is difficult? So that was one thing, was to ask people what is difficult in the walks they make. And the other thing that I was really interested in is asking them about places that they consider as being within walkable distance and where they would like to go, but where they don't go, and ask why that is. And that's something that, again, we don't know enough of, um, about um, in Auckland, for instance, a quarter of the trips that people drive are under one kilometer, and fourteen percent are even under five hundred meters. So people drive short trips, but we don't have a good understanding of why people drive short trips and why people don't walk short trips. So I was really interested. In that's the idea of severance, the idea of ah, there is this place I would like to go to, and I and I. And I can't. So I ask people to name the places that they would like to access, and again to understand what makes them say they don't want to. Uh, they want to to walk. The, I think what came really strongly out of this is the idea of traffic and traffic-related infrastructure. So the number one thing people talked about is difficulty of crossing the road, and non-signalized crossings came a lot. So as in a lot of towns and cities in New Zealand, there are a lot of non-signalized crossings where 
we transport engineers we might have dropped curbs and but you as a maybe as a driver you might not even know that this is a crossing because nothing tells you that this is a crossing and these these places came um, came a lot and the interesting thing was that so traffic and traffic related infrastructure came both from not disabled and non-disabled people um, so that's the first interesting finding. Like everyone struggles with the same things. The difference was that um, these things had quite different consequences and significances. For disabled people, it can just it could be a no go. I just cannot cross there. For non-disabled people, it would be just like oh, this is it's it's annoying and it's unsafe and I don't want to be here. Um, and it was a bit of an eye-opener um, in something that I had already heard before from disabled people, but that is not known well enough from um, in transport engineering, is that some staples of transport engineering are just not accessible to some people. For instance, for blind people, when you have a non-signalized crossing with a pedestrian refuge in the middle of the road, A, they don't know that there is a, a refuge in the middle of the road, B, they cross by hearing a gap in, hearing a gap in the traffic. And if the traffic is high enough, they cannot hear the gap. Maybe there is a gap from this side and you, and you would cross and you would stand in the middle. They, they can't because they can't hear that oh, there is a gap in this side and also they don't know that there is a, a refuge. So they, they were telling me, well, these, these things are just not useful for me. And one of my participants needs to take the bus, uh, he's blind, needs to take the bus to go to work. And there is this one crossing where some days he waits for 10 minutes because he needs to wait long enough to hear the gap in the traffic. And he was telling me his wife could drive him to the work, but he finds it really important that he would be able to go to work um, by himself. Um, so this for me was really interesting to hear from people the, what are the things that they struggle with and then to be able to go and see how those things look like. And so, for instance, people talked about non-signalized crossings, and I really wanted to give something specific to transport engineers. Because if I tell a transport engineer non-signalized crossings are difficult, I can understand their difficulty. They are going to say, well, we have zillions of them. <laughs> Which ones are difficult? So mm -hmm. I really wanted to, to, have, to be more specific about the ones that are uh, difficult. And that was a, that was a quite a good... Um, surprise or finding to say, well, actually, we can characterize those places in in quite a, in quite an objective way. Mm. So in this case, I found that three things mattered. Often in transport engineering, we look at the number of vehicles or traffic, but actually that was one of the elements. The other was how open the, the corner was. So say if you're going to cross a side road and you have a lot of traffic on the main road, maybe you don't have a lot of traffic on the side road, but any traffic driving fast on the side road could turn left and you know that actually this being very open they would they would be at, mm. at, at you very fast so that was important just the court how the, the geometry of the of the crossing and the other was the complexity how many movements you need to keep an eye on before you decide to cross and those things are pretty simple so it's it was possible to put numbers on with the with the radius higher than x and with the complexity higher than x, you need to expect people to struggle with mm. those places. 
And that for me was really interesting because A, I think that allows us, that could allow us to scan cities. If we find this important, if we, if we find important that people struggle to, to cross this, the, the, the streets, we can scan with this information, we can scan our cities and we can identify all the places where these people might be in difficulty. Mm. Um, and the other interesting thing for me was to reality check our design guidelines. I said, okay, I found those parameters that people struggle with. Do the design guidelines tell us to avoid those parameters or to design them better? And that was the, the, the finding was that the guidelines are a bit misaligned. There are things that people struggle with that the guidelines don't have on the radar. And then again, for me as a professional, that's interesting saying, well, maybe this is a scope for updating our guidelines mm. and having guidelines that um, make us this first build things that are going to be accessible, but also allow us to spot those places that people are currently struggling with or might be struggling with. And I guess that's the disconnect between someone who say, and this is such a generic image to paint, but person X who's a city planner sitting in an office who's never walked the street that they're deciding how to, to, mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. to design, right? Versus the person who actually lives on that street and, and knows the complexities of what that experience is. Yeah. And I thought it was fascinating in, in one of your studies that you engaged in this thing called citizen science where, to summarize sort of mm-hmm. quite, quite quickly and crudely, you basically you you said who wants to help with the study you did some level of training and you kind of sent them out there into the street to say walk the streets tell us tell us what the the what problems are presented to you and Mm -hmm. in the phd you can see certain photos of low-hanging trees and and curbs that are buckled and and some of the examples that you've mentioned which i thought was such a a true to life summary of what walkability is to actually say go out there and, yeah. and tell us what the problems are that may not show up on not that i'm a city planner of any kind but i imagine there are reports with numbers mm. and, and graphs that don't pick up on what that lived yeah, experience yeah, yeah, is yeah. totally and and even you um, i mean you have a lot of good city planners and transport planners who will go there and who will who will see the place but People are very different, mm. and uh, in in my case, for instance, every time I walk the street with a blind participant, I learn something new, and I really think that as transport engineers, we are not trained enough to be attuned to the needs, the diverse needs of diverse people. Um, so that was, yeah, that was interesting to, uh, and those people were participants from my interview, so some participants wanted to continue, um, continue the study, and um, there was a app that is quite uh, easy to use that they could use whenever they wanted whenever they wanted to um, go on a walk they could use the the app and they could stop at a place that they find interesting take a photo um, and then you have a smiley fat sad face and you can put um, you you can add some detail about you can uh, put either a voice message or type why this place is um, either beneficial or um, or a difficulty um, and yeah the most interesting results came from my blind participants it was also an interesting test because the app was designed to enable diverse people to you to participate but actually it was not very accessible to blind people which in itself I thought was an interesting finding mm. I think that we need to work more with blind people and we need to make tools accessible um, to them so actually one one of the findings of the study was really or one of the recommendations 
recommendations was how to improve those kind of tools to be um, more um, accessible to everyone. And the other was, yeah, really, as you said, this like true to life. Okay, they they really spoke about the accumulation of micro quote unquote barriers. That's also a, like a bit of a reality check for research or you know that when you do research, the, the, the way you design it is going to influence the results. So in my case, when I design interviews, I talked about routes that, they pe that people will typically walk. And so we focused only on those routes and we focused on those places that people remember. And so they are going to be pretty big things. But then when they walk on the street, they might notice those small things and they might uh, tell me about that. So that was actually really, uh, really interesting and important to find this, um, how the, the granularity of, of results depends on, uh, um, on, on the methods, yeah. The chapter seven of your PhD, which is where you, where you spoke to people, professionals from different backgrounds who've been planning health transport mm -hmm. and, and asked them a number of questions. And the question you asked them about how uh, facilitators of and barriers to walking described, a key finding was just about a lack of quality data. I think it's there, there are layers of complexity to that. Yeah. So the naive engineer in me would like to think that better data will make us take better decisions. I think the reality is that that's not how it happens. Mm. And so the, in the study, I surveyed people. And so it was an, an, an anonymous survey of people from different disciplines. And then I had a focus group with professionals from different disciplines. And in this focus, this focus group was actually extremely interesting because we talked about two things. We talked about the lack of focus on user experiences and we talked about the challenge of making cities more walkable. and. In the discussion, what came out is that they, these two things are linked, and we found a vicious circle that goes from decision making uh, through to how we collect data, who we engage with or not, um, how we visualize the, the, the difficulties people might have or not, where we put investment. And I think professionals, there are things that they know or don't know, but the core difficulty for me is decision-making. So in strategies we speak about cities being accessible, so implicitly we speak about people's experiences, we speak about the fact that people are going to find this place navigable or pleasant or livable, but that's not how we allocate money. Money is allocated based on benefit-cost ratios and those are calculated based on time savings, most often for, uh, for drivers. For traffic, you might have seen those maps where uh, the map is yellow or orange or green, depending on if traffic mm -hmm. is uh, progressing fast or is, is jammed. There is nothing such for walkability. We don't have such an overview of, ooh, those are the places that we should be focusing on because we don't collect the data, because we are not required to collect the data. And even if we did, we wouldn't take, um, we wouldn't act directly upon it. So that was actually really interesting for me, this whole discussion. And that's where one of the participants said, we treat people like, uh, like, like tiny cars. Even if the framework allows us to account for pedestrians' time savings or time losses, and we could uh, calculate say, the, the amount of dollars wasted because people wait too much time. Mm. If you don't know how many people cross at a certain place or how many people would want to cross and don't, 
you're not just not going to have this uh, this uh, dollar value to put against um, at all. If we can at least make it clear that walking and walkability is not a homogenous thing, it is a diverse experience. Is that kind of the starting point to, to then potentially make more make sense of more of the, the complexities and you know, mm. as you've just mentioned, you know, it's not as, as simple as saying yeah. here are the barriers, fix them. But maybe that is where I think the 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 entry point is. I think the entry point is really the what we want walking and walkability to be so for me the entry point would be uh, for policy and governance to be serious about walking and to say we want this much walking to happen and like i often think of jfk's moon talk we want to go to the moon right we're going to hire the scientists we're going to figure it out we're going to make it happen. So I think that the, the base difficulty is that there is not really this strong, this very ambitious, strong will of we are going to unlock walking and we are going to um, make a drastic change in how cities, how cities uh, function. I think if we had this, that would really be a strong mandate for, in the first place, better understanding how walking how walking works and uh, yeah the difficulty is that we don't have the agreement on how on what matters for walking and so we might assume that our oh, people just want the shortest route mm. or people just want to go from a to b i think that there are really way, ways forward it's really um having the mandate and then being serious about having the right indicators and acting upon them i would really like to see uh prioritize list of actions saying we scanned Auckland these are the top 10 deal breakers and we're going to fix them in the next six months mm. and then there are those following t 10 deal breakers and the, the next 10 and the next 10 and but there there is not there is not that uh, works are done left right and center but there is not this accountability saying we are going to put the money and the effort in the places that make that are going to make the biggest difference and as we've spoken about earlier, it's it's being cognizant of the fact that we're trying to improve walkability, but we can't have the tunnel vision of just walking. It must be considered in relation to yeah, public transport absolutely. and to driving. I mean, e-scooters are a huge thing yeah. now that ten years ago wouldn't have been part of yeah. the equation, but are absolutely part of part of an equation now. It all exists in the same environment of when people need to or want to get from somewhere to another place. Looking at the complexities of, of how that exists, and of course that is different in every single city. How it manifests and exists in Auckland is completely different from yeah. Wellington, is completely different from, yeah. from London, is completely different from Buenos Aires. You have to, obviously within the specific environment of, of local council or, or government, it's not enough to just think, how can we make something more walkable? Mm -hmm. It's yeah, yeah, how does it exist with the number two bus and how often that's running and, and everything else going yeah, on? It's, it's such a great point. And yes, I think we really need to make, at the end of the day, streets for people. And, and there is this really this huge effort of retrofitting all this infrastructure that we've inherited. And that was, in the case of New Zealand, much of what we see around us was designed in the... 20s, 30s, 40s, built in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and it's still, like, we, we wouldn't use a phone from the 50s. 
but we consider that a street that was designed in the 50s is still good for good for purpose so there is this really bro- broader picture of retrofitting environments and i think it also doesn't help that our budgets are split by mode mm. we have a tiny budget for walking and then budget for cycle well tiny budget for walking is of- often um, together with cycling so then this is another problem we really should have budgets for making streets uh, more amenable places and in a street that is more human friendly uh, it's you can't really say oh well the two percent of the works were for walking everything was for walking if the street it becomes more human friendly but the way our policy and budgets are are set up doesn't necessarily um, help towards this I really think that public transport um, operators and uh, providers should really be interested in walkability mm. because it doesn't. Uh, it's not enough to have X amount of people living around your bus stop. If they struggle to get to your bus stop, odds are they might not. You know, we know in, in Wellington and New Zealand generally there's a bus driver shortage, and you know the amount of times you go to a bus stop and you can't get get on the bus because it's packed and they go past and a lot of the frustration at the moment in the city planning is we need more bus drivers so we can have more buses on the route so people can use them but maybe the solution isn't we need more drivers so there are more buses on the route if you can convince half of those people to walk then you don't have a bus driver problem to, to fix and i think those two things are, are are going parallel so walking needs to be more convenient and pleasant for some and on the other hand we need to accept that bus is going to be extremely useful for either some people or for you when you buy your microwave or uh, when, it rains, know, it when, rains. It, when it rains yeah absolutely and the third thing is that if your buses are stuck in traffic you're going to need exponentially more drivers who are going to be stuck in traffic with your buses as opposed to providing infrastructure that is going to prioritize buses where you're going to have fewer vehicles and driving drivers doing the job that you need and um, ensuring the frequency that you want on say certain routes so it's really it's really connected and I I really think yeah as, as you were saying it's having this holistic approach improving walking but at the same time we need to decrease the attractiveness of driving we need to acknowledge that we've gone too far and that we are in a climate crisis and that uh, driving not only is a major danger to in terms of of climate but also in terms of road safety in terms of public health um, in terms of urban sprawl (laughs) that we don't talk uh, enough about so there needs to be this we, we need to be backtracking, we need to be um, transforming our streets to be more amenable for humans and not uh, vehicles. Mm-hmm. And there's something that you say in the PhD which I think is a really interesting provocation to kind of finish on. You write about the environment must adapt to the people, not the other way around. Which when I first read it I thought that is that seems so against the way that we think about problem solving and and the diversity of people and individual experience and people's ability to change but the more i read that the more i thought this this absolutely makes sense that that people are stubborn some some people there will always be change and if you present opportunities and, and reasons why people should change they will but it's easier to fix an environment and then people may make mm, their decisions yeah. after that rather than you know within this greater climate change conversation 
it's not as simple as saying to people, hey, if everyone changes, things things yeah. will radically become different. There are very specific, tangible things in the environment that can be adapted, and maybe we need to change totally. our position from what can we do to change people and more what can we do to change the environment mm. that they navigate in daily life. Totally. I would like to take a, just a, a completely disconnected example or analogy for this please do um branded with a fruit that makes um smartphones they didn't make a smartphone that is like this dysfunctional brick saying here's this dysfunctional brick use it or die no they are really interested in what people find convenient and useful and helpful because that's what people are going to choose. So they are really putting a lot of time and money and energy into understanding and having all those user... They invented the term user experience. Like They are really interested in user experience because that's how people are going to, uh, to choose their products. And I would also just like to briefly link to the social model of disability because I think it's... And, and I think it really talks to the same idea. The social model of disability says disability is not a characteristic inherent to the person. The disability is the characteristic of the interaction of the person in their environment. And an environment can enable a person to do things or can disable them from doing things. So if you don't have a leg, that's not a problem in itself. The problem is if the environment around you does not allow you to navigate. And so you spoke of people making choices and yeah, sometimes being stubborn. There are some people who have real difficulties and for whom the environment can make things just plain impossible. And I think that's a moral responsibility and duty to understand this and to fix it. I love that. Before we finish off, is there anything else that you want to, 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 to touch on? I mean, it's been a, a few years since the PhD was published. Obviously, you live in Bristol now. You've returned to New Zealand exclusively for this interview. Um, have spent some time in Auckland, I guess, to wrap things up. Is there anything that, that you, you haven't spoke about that you'd, you'd want to touch on or, or how you think about what you're doing now mm, or the future, yeah. whether it be for Auckland or the work you do? Just kind of an open mic if there's anything that oh, you wanted to yeah. discuss before we finish. Oh, that's dangerous to open the mic for people who done a PhD well we tend to be like really yeah. passionate about what we've done no but I would just like to talk about a small thing is well small not small um, my until now I was really focused on the technical aspects of what should we fix and um, I really got into this um, change of mindset thinking I need to fo we need to focus more on how decisions are made mm. so that's for me the big thing that I'm going to focus on now uh, there were two interesting really pieces of um, research that were published one was called what gets measured gets done and to this piece there was an interesting response piece titled what gets measured doesn't necessarily get done saying how the risk for us researchers is to hide in our labs and do the kind of data analyses we find exciting, even though this might not translate into real-world improvements. I'm really interested in real-world improvements, so that's the thing where I'm taking this in how we can make change happen or how we can facilitate and enable change to happen in a way that delivers against the needs of different people. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an amazing discussion. The PhD is non-walkability in a car-centric city. Dr. Tamara Bozovic, thank you so much for joining us. It's been awesome. Kia ora, James.
For previous episodes from this season and seasons one and two, check us out on Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well as other listening platforms and follow us, PhD Unpacked, on Instagram and TikTok.